Hear then God's word this day from the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom, and give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply your prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. From the New Testament, Romans 12, 3-8. For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. And since we have gifts that defer according to the grace given to us, let each exercise them accordingly, if prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith, if service, in his serving, or he who teaches, in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Thus far, the written word. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this day in order that we may hear and learn. We ask, O Lord, that through the preached word, the means of grace that you have appointed, that you will open up to us the fullness of your revelation through the Old and New Testaments, so that we will understand more fully all that you have shown to us, whether in the types of the shadows of old Israel, or especially now in the fulfillment in Jesus Christ and in his body, the church. Grant, O Lord, to us true understanding and humble and content spirits who will obey you and worship you and glorify your holy name. Amen. Please be seated. We return again this morning to the book of Romans, chapter 12. And last week we began the new section of Romans, which deals with the acts of gratitude which are now required. Christian life and sanctification to which we have been called. 
Now, to many people, this is all taken out of order, where we begin by declaring to people the law of God and the obedience they owe to God, and then after they learn how to obey God to our standards, then we declare to them, now we affirm you as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, because now we see in you a testimony of your life. But the Apostle Paul, who is given the ministry by Jesus Christ himself, declares to us that first comes condemnation through the law. The law read to unbelievers will not cause them to repent. It will not cause them to love God. The law given to an unbeliever will cause them to hate God even more. But through the law being preached, God says that he will break the hearts of his elect. Those whom he predestined to everlasting life, God will take the law and he will use it to show them their utter sinfulness so that they will call out, as we did today in our confession of sins, that we acknowledge not only do we do the good, but we actually find joy in others who do the same. And we will finally acknowledge not one of us has done good and therefore not one of us has hope or the right to approach God in our own strength and righteousness. Then comes the gospel. To those who understand their sinfulness, to those who can acknowledge that there is no good in them, the gospel comes and declares, but God has chosen you to be his precious possession and is going to give you life freely by grace because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so sinners are saved. The sick receive healing. And those who were once dead in their sins and transgressions are made alive in Jesus Christ. And through a large portion of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul expounds to us what the gospel means. That we have an alien righteousness, not of our own, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ, freely given to us. Just as in Adam all men die, in Christ all the chosen of God are made alive. And those who have been saved by Jesus Christ cannot go on in their sins, because we have been redeemed not only from the penalty, but the power of sin, so that now the chains are broken and we are lifted upright to serve the King in spirit and in truth. In this life, however, the Apostle tells us the struggle with sin will remain. You will not achieve or reach perfection in this life. And therefore, those who are so arrogant and foolishly boastful as to say that they have achieved perfection, God condemns their boastfulness and their pride and reminds them that in this life you will struggle. In this life you must live by grace alone all the days that the Lord gives you. But we are also told, despite these warnings, never to be hopeless. Every day of your lives is to be lived in confidence that God loves you, that God's will is unchangeable, that God will never take back a word that he has said, and therefore you are able to call him Father. You are able to always have and sure confidence in your heart given to you by the Spirit that you as new creations in Jesus Christ shall never ever be separated from the love of God. 
Because it is not your works that bound you to God. It was His promise and the work of Christ. And since God's promises do not fail, you will never ever be cast out once He has saved you. He goes on to display that this gospel is the fulfillment of the promises given to Israel. Therefore, we are the Israel of God today. All those promises and prophecies of a Davidic kingdom and of a new temple are fulfilled already in Jesus Christ and in us. And so now, Jew and Gentile have one and the same hope. Jesus who saves sinners. And this is now your hope. And so, having been declared sinners in yourselves, and acknowledging this, having then been raised up through Jesus Christ to a new life, your sinful self being buried with Him in baptism, crucified on the cross, you now have been raised up with Him to a new and everlasting life. Paul says, therefore, live as new creatures. No longer go about in the old ways, the darkened ways that we saw in chapter 1 where all sinful men, therefore all men, suppress the truth and unrighteousness, now we are told, have your mind transformed into the mind of Christ. Be raised up anew and love the King and serve Him with all your might. And now the Apostle Paul continues to expound on the meaning and significance of the Christian life. As we said last week, he does not go back to the Ten Commandments and tell you to memorize them and seek to live in accordance with those things as the right form of Christian gratitude. Now, this is not to say that we ignore the Ten Commandments. Already today, we looked at the Third Commandment and expounded its meaning to more fully understand the holiness of God. But note what he says. The Christian life is not to be lived with a checklist. The Christian life is not given as a manual where you go to the Bible and you say, all right, fine, it is now Monday morning. These are the following things I will do as a Christian and check them off through the day. And then you have the warning side of the page. These are the things to avoid. So you keep making sure you avoid those things and everything will be made right. That's for a child. That's why the Apostle Paul says, the law was given to us when we were children, but now we are adults. Now we are given something else, and that is the mind of Christ. And what we are going to be told then over the following weeks, as we look through the remaining chapters of, of Romans, is that we are to have not so much a checklist of laws that we live by, but a mindset and a direction which God will sanctify through His Spirit, through the preached Word, which will guide us in truth. Turning then to Romans 12. For through the grace given me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. What is Paul referring to here? Keep in mind what he has already said in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. It says the following, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which sacrifice of your life is your spiritual service of worship, or your rational service of worship, we said last week. 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove, you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And so now, what is that will of God? It is that you understand that you were a sinner saved by grace. That you understand your right station and not think of yourself more highly than you should. This is the temptation that Paul is fighting that many will have, which is that you continue more and more to forget how wicked you were and how desperate you saw yourself in that day where God convinced you of your sins and drew you to Christ. As the years go on, in some cases as the moments go on, you grow in a pride and with an arrogance that looks down on everyone else and is quick to find the fault and deficiency in everyone. Because you think of yourself more highly than you ought. You view yourself as the just judge of the universe. And Paul says, as the apostle who has been specifically called by Jesus Christ, I say to you, do not be proud or boastful. Do not think of yourself highly, but rather think of yourself in accordance with what you have already learned in Romans. There is no one who does good, not even one. There is no one who seeks for God. It is not my righteousness that saves, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. When you think of these things, when these things are in your mind, then you are able to return to God and see in Him true mercy and grace which is being given to you. As you look at your neighbor, you begin to understand that each and every one around you is saved by the same grace and with the same faith with which you are saved. So is there any distinction between me and any one of you as regards the judgment seat of Christ? No. Is there any difference between you and anyone else in this room as regards standing in Christ's righteousness? No. Then who are you to judge anyone when you have no exaltation in yourself? You are not to be lifted up to rule over others. And so, think of yourself with sound, sane, rational judgment in accordance with this, that God has given you a saving faith. Now think, though you are an individual, you are nonetheless a member of the covenant community. Verse 4, for just as we have many members, many parts, in a one body, and all of the members, or parts, do not have the same function. So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Here's another reason you should not think of yourself more highly. You don't exist by yourself. Not one of you is above another, regardless of office or station. Men and women are different, but men are not better than women, and women are not better than men. The offices of this church are given the office of ruling the church, and yet not because we are better than you, but God set us aside to do this task. In the day of judgment, we all stand in Christ and in, no, in nothing else. And so now we are being told, consider 
each and every person around you is a member of that same body of which you are a part. And just as you have a function, each and every other person has a function. And if you do not see that, then you have closed your eyes. You are blind to the truth that God has revealed. And you foolishly view yourself as free of others because you are better than others. Now, you might think, no, 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 I'm actually much more humble. The reason I separate myself from others is that I don't want to contaminate them. I know my sinfulness. I know they're all better. Once again, the question comes, who are you to be wiser than God? He chose you specifically for a particular function that he chose to give to no one else. You will do it. Or your pride has gone in the way and you are not thinking soberly or rationally, but you are thinking as a fool. Verse 6. And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us each exercise them accordingly. And then we'll go through the specific gifts. Here's what we are being told. Every one of us, by God's grace, have been given a particular role and function in life. From our very birth, we were already differentiated as men and women. From our lives as we grew up, we were given different roles and stations, to the point that now today in this church, each and every one of us has a particular function given according to God's grace to us. Now, not one of us has received more grace than another as regards any station or office that we have. That is a common misinterpretation. The more your faith, the more grace God has given you, somehow the higher your gifts and station. That's not what it is saying here. We are being told that in accordance with God deferring how he chooses to use us, we must all recognize that it is by grace given to us that we function in whatever role we have. And then the following are given. If you have been given the role of prophecy then do this work of prophesying in accordance with faith or according to the analogy of faith. Now, some take this to mean if you are given by God the role of prophecy, then in accordance with your little bitty faith or in accordance with your great faith, say things appropriately. That's not what it's saying. The use of the word faith can also, or proportion can also be translated analogy, analogous that which is in accordance with or by the right measure of. So to those in the early church, when God was still revealing himself to prophets, he told them, only in accordance with the true and living faith that you have been given once for all are you to prophesy. What does this mean? Keep in mind the following. The apostles would write new things that no one was allowed to question or challenge. These were the word of God and would have to be received. But there was another group below the apostles called prophets in the New Testament church. And these were ones who were told that as one of you speaks, the others among you are to evaluate what he is saying in order that everyone will know that what he speaks is true. So the prophets then we don't have them today. The same idea does carry forward, however. Anything that is taught must be taught in accordance with that which is revealed by God. 
And so the prophet does not have the authority to go beyond the word of God and to say things contrary to the word of God. Now the Puritans considered the preaching ministry as prophesying. In other words, the declaration of the word of God. And in, if you use it in that way, the same warning would still be held today. No minister ever is to speak beyond what God has given him the right to say. And so, though he may have other interests, and he may have peculiar, whether cultural sensitivities or things according to his own nature that he likes or doesn't like, those are not to be declared as the law of God. That is a right understanding, a sober evaluation of his station. You want to see the opposite of this? Turn on the TV. Go to almost any other church and listen to ministers give to you a list of their particular likes and dislikes of how you are to live in accordance with their image of what a believer ought to be rather than in accordance with the word of God. In fact, we're now at the point that there are Christian ministers, so-called on television, that are calling upon the United States to declare war on other nations, which they believe is in accordance with the word of God. When God has declared to us, that we are to be peacemakers. What blasphemous arrogance it is to go before God and say, I can see that you say, blessed are the peacemakers, but I know that we must declare war in order that we fulfill your will and bring about the end times. But that is the level to which this world has gone. That's why Paul says, only that which is in accordance with the revealed word of God can be declared as coming from God. So whether it is the prophets or the ministers, they cannot speak one word different than what God has said without facing the judgment. Verse 7, if your calling is to serve, then serve God in accordance with with the one true faith given to you. This service is to be for the good of others. The service that you are called to give is not to be done from a proud or arrogant station, but with a sober and sound judgment of your proper condition, a sinner saved by grace. So when Paul says that we are now to no longer be conformed to the ways of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind, when we are being told that we are to be sanctified in our words, in our thoughts, in our actions, we are told that it is to be done in a manner that glorifies God by understanding that it is done for His glory. So, if you are called to serve, if that is your gift, then serve God with this gift. Serve others joyfully. If you are called to teach, whether that is your own children, whether it is in encouraging others, then you teach God in accordance, or you teach the things of God in accordance with that which is revealed and therefore in accord with our faith. Now, to many this would seem, oh, well, you know, therefore the teaching must be done by everyone. No. The teaching is for those who are called to teach. If you are called to exhort or to encourage then in your exhortation, do these things because it is the gift given to you and must be done in accordance with the grace that you are given. Now, what to do with all this? We're, we're being told some specifics. 
But what is the general thrust, the general theme of this? Before we continue further, let's turn to Isaiah and see how this plays out, the humble and joyful service to which we are called. Now, the prophet Isaiah is condemning the Israelites because of their false worship. But notice where their error lies. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom, and give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Does this relate to what we've been looking at? Well, yes. Keep in mind the Israelites are delivered by God and called to serve him. They are to serve him not only in the outward acts of worship, but particularly in the disposition whereby they see themselves as those who were slaves who have been freed by grace, who are now called to be the living manifestation of God's grace in the world, if you will. They are to be a light to the nations. They are to be a royal priesthood and a holy nation, though there is differentiated within them particular roles, more specifically. But what have they become? They become a people who have an outward religiosity. They have become a people who will follow ceremonies, but have no love of God in their hearts. And so God says, I despise your religion. I don't care for the fact that you can follow a checklist and say you've offered the sacrifices and called your assemblies on the correct days, that you've celebrated the new moon, that you bring to me even your prayers. I despise them. I hate them. I will not listen. Why? Because at the end of the day, your hands are covered with blood. You are murderers in your hearts and in your actions. Verse 16 and 17. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. God says to them, you have been so faithful in the externalities, in bringing sacrifices, to the point that I can see them all the time, but I'm sick to death of them. Because the inward disposition of the heart has been entirely absent. You have desired your own strength and glory. You view yourself as better than others. So that oppressing others seems to be just fine for you. You have power. You use it to your advantage to the harm of others. You have money. You keep using it to steal more from the poor. The widow and the orphan, those who need someone to plead their cause, you ignore as long as you have what you want. And you call yourselves my people? I don't even want to hear your prayers. In fact, let me tell you this. I don't care how much you pray, I will not listen. 
Now take that and bring it to Romans. The Apostle Paul says we are to recognize who we are, sinners saved by grace. And when we go before God, we are not to go before Him and check off and say, look, here's what we've done. We did not commit adultery, we did not commit murder, we did not steal, we did not do whatever. He says, no. Remember that you were sinners saved by grace who are called now to be a light to the world. You are the city on the hill. You are the salt for the whole nations. How dare you reduce the service to me to a checklist? Though you do it all, I will ignore it. What I want to see in you is a desire for the good of others. That you do not take advantage of positions that you have, but rather you humbly serve and do good. If you are given the role of prophecy, then your prophesying is in accordance with what I have revealed and not in accordance with your own peculiar desires. Whether you like or dislike anything is not of relevance to me. Preach the truth and limit yourself to what Scripture says. If I affirm something to be good, you had better affirm it to be good. If I condemn something, you had better not excuse it. If I call you to serve, then serve with the thought of how you will help the weak, the widow, the fatherless, the orphan, the stranger, the one who has no voice. In this church, how do you serve others? Well, inviting people who are as rich as you is not the way to do it. Show generosity to those who do not have. Give so that the deacons have money to give to others as well. Provide encouragement for those who are despondent. And the one who is friendless, whether he is new, depressed, or has the worst personality you've ever seen, that's the one that you need to go to. Because that's the one who shows and demonstrates the needs of a fallen person. If you are to encourage, to exhort, then do this in a manner in which the other person really is encouraged. Exhort those who are sinning and remind them of holiness, not in a manner where you sound better or holier than them, but as a fellow believer who also struggles. If you are to give, give with liberality, or as it says, in simplicity. That means without ulterior motives. Do you give, whether it is to the church or to someone in need, with the idea of, oh, I will receive a reward? Do you give in the hopes that, well, I really hope that this guy can pay me back? In simplicity or with liberality, they can both mean the same thing. It's basically saying that you give for the sake of giving. You give because God has given to you, and you give it without thinking a second thought. The same as the service you rendered. You render it simply because you are given the opportunity and the time. What about those who lead? Lead with diligence. If it is your office to be one who oversees, then do it in a manner where you recognize this is for the good of others and not simply to fill a role. And if you are called upon to show mercy, then show your mercy with cheerfulness. Do not begrudge those to whom you are giving your time. Do not make it seem like it's a grand sacrifice and you have better things to do. You make it seem like this is the only reason you woke up that day was in order to show mercy to that one who needed it so that that person is truly able to receive this encouragement. So now looking at these things, do you see the difference between this 
and a simple recitation of the Ten Commandments and a seeking to obey those things. At the end of the day, can you really say that you have done all that God has commanded if all you've done is avoid external sinfulness? If you can go to sleep and say, you know what, it's good. I didn't steal, I didn't lie, I didn't commit adultery. God would say, well, good, those things you ought to have done. But did you show mercy with cheerfulness? Did you give with simplicity? Did you exhort with a joy in your heart for the grace that you've already received from me? Do you see why this is so much more difficult than a simplistic checklist system of Christianity? But keep in mind, this is all being told to you now that God has already given you Christ. You're not being told, do these things and then I will forgive you your sins and make you my own. You're being told, since you have been saved and since I have raised you up in Jesus Christ to a new life, this is how you are going to live. And so, going back to Isaiah 1, verse 18, Come now, let us reason together, you who are sinners, who are covered with blood, who do evil, who do not know the good, who have not sought justice, who have not done good for the orphan or the widow. Come now, says the Lord, though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. That which you could not do, I will grant to you. I will make you perfect in my sight. And if you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. I will bring you to me. I will transform you so that you will be worthy of being in my presence. And I will cause you then to do all that I have commanded and revealed in my word. But to those who hear these things and who will rely upon external righteousness, if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So what then is our conclusion? The sermon title says, Humble and Joyful Service. The sanctification that is required of the believer is humble and joyful service in accordance with the fact that God has saved you, in accordance with the fullness of the revealed word, which is the content of our faith. That is the humble and joyful service that is required of you this day. And this will not bring you reward. This is the consequence of the fact that you've already received the blessing and the reward, which is Jesus Christ himself and a new life and your name written in the heavenly temple. As a consequence of these things, this is what the child of God looks like and acts like and does. And so you are called, beloved, to no longer be in the ways of the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind and then to live the Christian life in accordance with that transformation to the glory of God in the service of others and that you may receive the assurance which comes as God manifests his spirit in your life. Let's pray. Gracious God and King, how wondrous are your ways and how amazing it is to hear that we who were known by you to be vile and vicious sinners have been transformed, made alive, and given the everlasting inheritance. 
And now you call us to understand the wonders of being your children and members of the body of Christ, that we are to live in service to you and to one another, to do all things in accordance with what you have revealed and for your glory, and to delight in you alone. May we, in fact, therefore grow in our love for you in mind, soul, in strength, and also for our neighbor as ourselves. May our service be heartfelt and sincere. And may we do all these things with no expectation of reward, but out of sheer gratitude for what you've given us in Christ. Amen. And so, beloved, let us no longer focus on the things we can get from God, but on God himself so that our service may be pure. Let us therefore sing, Be Thou My Vision. Let us stand.